All right, we are in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be looking at 31 verses today. And uh, the, the title of the sermon this morning is Following Jesus to the Cross. And I'm going to be reading and teaching from a new translation um, that is uh, becoming a, a huge blessing in my life. Um, it uh, may or may not be available on your Bible app. I'm pretty sure you didn't bring one with you today. So the Scripture is going to be up here. It's the Christian Standard Bible, um, and it's very accurate. It's very readable, and that's what I'm going to be reading from. So you can read along on the screens, or you can go to CSB if you have an app. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 1. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. And so he threw the silver into the temple, and he departed, and then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, It's not permitted to put this into the temple treasury, since it is blood money. They conferred together, and they bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus answered, you say so. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? But he didn't answer him, even on one charge. And so the governor was quite amazed. And at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so they had gathered together, and Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Guys, this is a good indicator here. Listen to your wives, okay? Verse 20. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. And the governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. And then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that it was getting nowhere, but a riot was starting instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be upon us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Church, this is the word of God. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we're we're thankful for this opportunity now to examine 
and, and allow our hearts to be examined. We examine Scripture and allow our hearts to be examined by Scripture. And we confess, Lord, we're not able to understand Scripture or examine our own hearts apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you now, God, to anoint this time, anoint each of us as, as we handle your word now. We love you and we declare this time is yours. Give us hearts of worship as we uh, receive and examine your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So following Jesus to the cross. Uh, Today we're looking at Jesus' path to the cross, and we're going to examine what it means for us as followers of Jesus to follow Jesus to the cross. What does this mean for our lives? And recently we've considered whether Jesus is worth following. For several weeks we've seen uh, people having placing different value on Jesus and whether he's worth following. His disciples had done a, a good job, at least a fair job, of following Jesus up until very recently. And then we, we've seen recently Judas betraying Jesus. And last week Chad taught, and we saw Peter denying Jesus. And then last week we heard that all the other disciples, they'd all fled. And so today we see Jesus all alone. And what happened? What caused these 12 disciples who'd followed Jesus for more than three years, who'd followed him for hundreds of miles on dirt roads, wearing sandals uh, through, you know, thick and thin, what causes them to suddenly abandon Jesus? I feel like these 12 followers of Jesus were repulsed by the same thing that many of us shy away from in our pursuit of Jesus, and that is the cross. We see that it's the reality of the cross that scatters the disciples at this point. It's interesting because Jesus spent his entire ministry focusing on the cross, preparing himself for the cross, preparing his followers for the cross, inviting people to follow him by saying, pick up a cross and follow me. Jesus also promised explicitly that anyone that would follow him would experience hardship. They would suffer. So the cross was this inevitability for Jesus, both in his life, he knew, and also in the lives of those who would follow him, that your life would be complicated at least. He was headed for a cross, and Jesus taught his disciples that suffering and death lay ahead for all who remained faithful to God. And we know that that's true because Satan is not a complacent enemy. Sin has real power apart from the cross. And so Jesus clearly taught his disciples, and he teaches us here in this passage that we will suffer and even die as we live for Christ. This isn't some obscure detail, only true of Christians who live in dangerous places. This isn't just a metaphor for how hard it is for us as we deal with sin, like, oh man, that's so hard, I feel like I'm dying, right? No, Jesus taught that his followers would experience true hardship, true suffering, and even true death. And the cross is not some optional detail for these special set of persecuted Christians. The cross is actually the central part of what Jesus came to do and is a central component of all of his teachings. He tells anyone who would follow him to count the cost because there's a cross that lies ahead. And he cautions us to know what we're getting into. There's a daily self-denial Jesus would teach as we follow Jesus. There's a real persecution for those who would publicly follow Jesus with all of their hearts. And so as we look at these verses today, we're examining Jesus' way to the cross, and we're going to focus specifically on what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. In these moments, Jesus reveals some life lessons for us, some, some object lessons. We can see how Jesus walks in light of persecution, in light of hardship, in light of the threat of murder even. This man who ended his life on the cross as we pursue him. And so the first two verses 
of our passage show Jesus before the governor and the religious leaders. Jesus is rejected by both the religious leaders and the government. And so we see in this that the way of the cross is a way of rejection. So the first clear point we see in our passage, the way of the cross is a way of rejection. At some point, if you're following Jesus with your life, you will experience rejection as you follow Jesus. Rejection is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Both the religious leaders and the government. Jesus had rejection from all parties here. And so as a Christian, we should understand that if we follow Jesus, we will experience rejection too at some point in our life. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> taught this to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, all who want to give God excuse me, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, Paul said. Persecution is a normal part of following Jesus. And uh, it's good for us to examine this because the Bible has a unique and totally un-American perspective on persecution. Now, as American Christians, uh, think about this for a second. How do we, just thinking generally as American Christians, how do we respond? How do we feel when we hear that our religious liberties are taken away, or they might be infringed upon, or, oh, there's this threat that this might happen, and you might lose some religious freedom, right? We resist that, don't we? We're totally opposed to that. We feel that it's very wrong, and it's totally counter to God's will. It's totally counter to God's plan for our country. It's totally counter to our lives to experience any form of religious persecution or any form of, of, of rights, religious rights being lost. But what does the Bible say is happening when our religious liberties are taken away? Listen to Jesus as he addresses this issue in Luke chapter 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and the prisons. So there you see like this religious persecution and you see this like social form of government persecution. And he says, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you, listen to this last part, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Look at the word that Jesus uses to describe persecution in this verse. The word he uses is opportunity. And we have to see that when we're mistreated, it's an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. That in persecution, we're given an opportunity to go the way of the cross, as Jesus did. Jesus says that our persecution is an opportunity to bear witness to God's love for us and God's love for the world in Christ. And this literally happened to every single apostle in the early church, right? They were put in prisons. They were mistreated. The rights were stripped from them. Some were tortured. Most were murdered. One day, we see this picture in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are out preaching. This is on the Sabbath, the holy day. They go into the synagogue, and they're, they're teaching and preaching, and they're in there, and they heal a man on the Sabbath, very similar to something Jesus had done as a part of his ministry. And the religious leaders give them all kinds of grief, right, just like they did with Jesus. They actually have them arrested, They have this form of a trial, and they release them after having been in prison for talking about Jesus and healing in Jesus' name on the Sabbath. They release them, and the guys immediately go to church. They immediately go to the the church gathering, and they all gather to pray. And we're given this incredible insight into this prayer. Look at this. Read with me. In Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 29, here's their prayer. They say, and now, Lord, consider their threats, right? The they were commanded not to, not to teach in Jesus' name. Consider their threats. 
And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God boldly. Man, I want to go to that church, (laughs) right? I want to go to that church. Persecution brought them to this place of desperation. It brought them to this place of social powerlessness. It brought them to a place of dependence on God. They're not begging God to make it stop. They're not asking God for comfort. They're not asking God for some American dream blessing. They don't ask for a bigger house or a better job or, or make, it, you know, make us more comfortable, God. They pray for boldness. They pray with expectancy. They pray for healing. They pray for signs and wonders. They're saying, God, get crazy. Be obvious. Be big. Do something supernatural. We want to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, and they're not afraid to pray for boldness in the face of persecution. Here we see these apostles. They're praying and asking God for his spirit to break down fearfulness, to break down timidity. Here they're asking God to be God and get crazy and heal and and to show supernatural signs. And so as I've been sitting on this passage and really meditating and, and just wishing for that church, why does it so often seem like things are stagnant in the American church? It's a question I've been asking myself. Why does it just not, it seems like this is different, you know, in, in, in some significant ways. Why aren't people healed more often? Why is there not a crazy spiritual breakthrough happening in the church just, just all over the place? Why, why doesn't the room shake on Wednesday nights, right? So I've been asking, why isn't the Word of God spoken boldly by all of us in Ventura County? Why are we not those people? And I've been thinking perhaps it's because we don't pursue and receive the way of the cross. I think this this way of the cross is is significant for us. To really watch how Jesus handles personal, real persecution. Because, and and this is an honest confession, might be TMI for you guys, sorry, but I'm going to lump you in with me because I think it's a little more common than just me. I think we tend to pray for comfort. I know I do. We tend to pray for comfort and blessing more often than we pray for boldness and spiritual authority. I think that's lacking in the church. I think we pray for comfort and blessing more often than we pray for boldness and spiritual authority. I I also think that we tend to pray for safety and security more often than we pray for signs and wonders. Right? What, what if we weren't so obsessed with our kids' safety that that's all we prayed about when it came to praying for our kids, right? What if I was like, God, just drop a pillar of fire into the skate park when Will's there today. Just capture, you know, just blow his mind. Set him on fire with supernatural signs. What if I was more concerned about my son's passionate pursuit of Jesus than I was about his safety? Like, oh, not another broken wrist, God. But, you know, like... This is, a, this is real in my life. I've been convicted of this this week. Also, I think we tend to trust the wisdom of man when it comes to illness and sickness and hardship. We tend to trust the wisdom of man more readily than we turn to God for supernatural healing. Sometimes I think supernatural healing is kind of 
tacked on to our pursuit of medical help because we're like, well, we're Christians and we see in the Bible they prayed for healing, so God, heal them if it's your will. But thank you for these doctors. Thank you for this, you know, thank you for this hospital. Thank you. And, and it's awesome how God uses the medical system. It's incredible how God blesses and anoints doctors. Even, even doctors that aren't Christians have supernatural insight and, and this incredible education all of that. But listen, God did a heck of a lot of healing in the early church without the use of doctors in our modern medicine. And we should be praying for that. We should be walking in that. Just picture this happening. Verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this this form, this type of filling of the Holy Spirit that happens. These people had already been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're already Christians, right? And they're filled in some way with the Holy Spirit for a purpose. They go and they speak the Word of God boldly. Sometimes I wonder if this isn't happening because we don't experience the same kind of like depth of need that they had. Or maybe it's because we're not really persecuted, or maybe it's because we aren't in enough need of God's supernatural power to sustain us. We're, we're pretty comfortable. We've got it pretty easy. We can kind of fly under the radar in our cultures, so to speak. See, these early Christians, they had the right perspective on persecution. They turned from this persecution, from having all of their rights stripped, right? All of their rights were stripped, and they were thrown in jail. They turn from that after they get out of jail straight to God asking for supernatural power, turning from this powerlessness, from being arrested prisoners to praying for boldness and power to preach the Word of God with boldness. See, it's not that we seek out persecution, right? It's not like, oh, God, persecute me or anything. We don't, we're not looking for some weird self-inflicted suffering. That's, that's not what we see on the way to the cross, and that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm just saying it's our job to pursue the way of the cross, that we live in light of our calling to take up a cross and follow Jesus. And in today's text, we see the disciples did not consider Jesus worth the risk of persecution. When they faced persecution, right? When it's like, wait, you, you were with Jesus too. It's Jesus is over just getting the snot beat out of him. Peter's like, no, not me. No way, right? It wasn't risk the, worth the risk of persecution for Peter to own that in that moment. When faced with the cross, the disciples denied Christ and scattered. And so here's a question that, that I've been asking, I believe the Holy Spirit has given me and, and, and to share with you guys is, when we're faced with the cross, how do we respond? When we're faced with that, like, hey, aren't you a Christian? Well, you believe that? You, you believe that's true? How do we respond? When we face hardship or persecution because of our faith, we should not be surprised. It's our opportunity to walk in the way of the cross. Our passage continues now, and the second thing we see is that the way of the cross is true repentance. The way of the cross is true repentance. The religious leaders reject Judas's 30 pieces of silver in an effort to put on a, 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 a holy or religiously pure exterior. They deny this blood money. They're like, that's blood money. We can't accept that in the temple. Just, just take a second and realize the hypocrisy of that statement. The reason that those particular 30 pieces of silver were blood money were because these religious leaders had used it to pay Judas in exchange for Jesus, knowing they were going to kill Jesus. It was those leaders with murder in their heart and Jesus' blood on their hands that had turned those 30 pieces of silver into blood money. Judas is giving it back, and they're like, oh no, all of a sudden it's unholy money, right? It's just crazy hypocrisy. But even worse than that, more tragic than that, and much 
Much more sad than that is Judas's false repentance when he's confronted with his sorrow. Because Judas seems to have felt bad about his sin, but doesn't bring his sin before the Lord in true repentance. See, the way of the cross confronts our sin. And the way of the cross leads us with two options when we're confronted with our sin. We either deal with our sin ourselves, or the second option for us is to bring our sin to God and to turn from it. When we deal with our sin ourselves, this is usually because we feel bad about what we've done. We regret the consequences, right? We're sitting in the consequences of our sin, and we're like, oh, man, I never should have done that. Oh, this is so horrible. Oh, I've offended everybody. I'm such an awful person, right? Or what we try to do is we try to ignore it or cover it up, or maybe we just wallow in self-pity over it. We just are so discouraged by our sin. We're so discouraged. I fell into that again. I did it again. And we're brought to this place of just wallowing in self-pity. That's what happens when we deal with our sin ourselves. Now, the second option is to bring our sin to God and turn from it. And this requires us to own our sin. We own our sin before God. This means that we recognize that our sin is not just against others. Our sin, first and foremost, is against God. Each of us face these options with our sin every day. What do you do with your sin? What do I do with my sin? How do I deal with that? Do we feel bad and just hide our sin? Right? Are you, are you a sin hider? Like pretend like it's not there? Or, or maybe uh, you wallow in self-pity or self-deprecation or, or shame, right? You have, you've identified yourself as your sin and so you see yourself as less than. You've given sin this like weird authority and power over you, which by the way was broken on the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So our sin doesn't have that false authority over it. But when we try to deal with our sin ourselves, rather than bringing it to the, the cross of Jesus Christ, it, it, we, we give it this weird authority. Or do we go to Jesus in repentance and ask for true forgiveness? And it says in verse 3 that Judas had remorse, that Judas regretted betraying Jesus. He wished he hadn't done what he had done, right? He's like, oh man, they're going to kill him. And he felt bad about that. But we have to see that the, the Greek word that's used here for regret is totally different than the word that's used all throughout the New Testament for repentance. Different words. So we have to be clear about what Judas is feeling here. Judas feels bad about his decisions, the consequences of his actions, but he is not repenting. He has remorse, he has regret, but he does not have a heart that is submitted to the Lord in repentance. This is valuable for us to look at because there's a difference here. And each of us face this every day. When we're faced with our sin, we often feel sorrow. But there are two types of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul shows us this and teaches us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, for godly grief or godly sorrow... That word gets translated both ways in the New Testament. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow or worldly grief produces death. And we see this literally happening with Judas. His worldly sorrow brings about death. It's especially powerful for us to see because last week we looked at the story of Peter's fall. And it's good for us to see and examine Peter and Judas kind of side by side because there's some striking similarities between these guys. They both followed Jesus for more than three years. They both witnessed and listened to and, and, and were disciples of Jesus, not just physically following him, but really following them, him with everything. And here they are in the, in the last two weeks, we've seen them both denying Jesus, both abandoning Jesus. 
But Judas continues. When he's confronted with his sin, he continues down the path that Chad talked about last week, this path that leads away from God, the path that leads to worldly sorrow, where we see Peter responding to the Holy Spirit when he's convicted of his sin, and he changes course, and he returns to God in in repentance. He abandons his sin, he owns it, and he walks away from it. Peter's repentance is to the Lord. And we see Peter be restored, and he becomes a pillar of the early church. Repentance had led to fruit in Peter's life. Whereas Judas goes out and he hangs himself because he'd lingered in his sorrow. He literally murders himself, lingering in sorrow and self-pity. Right? Just imagine that, just feeling the weight. If you allowed yourself to sit in that, you're like, wait, I'm the guy that was prophesied that was going to do this? I'm that guy. And, I, and he allows himself to sit in that. It's crushing. So what's the difference? What does that look like in our lives between worldly sorrow and godly repentance? Worldly sorrow is a work of our emotions. Worldly sorrow is a work of the flesh, in other words. It's like a roller coaster ride. Whereas godly repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work that changes us. Because godly repentance, though we may feel sorrowful, godly repentance leads us to truth. And we can respond to truth. Whereas worldly sorrow leads us to hopelessness. It leads us to self-pity. Worldly sorrow is mostly sad about the consequences of our sin, but godly repentance is mostly sad that we've rebelled against God because, because again, we're, we're led to the truth. Worldly sorrow leads to death, separating us from the Lord. We spiritually die, and we see relationships die when we go down the path of worldly sorrow. We see marriages break apart. We see, like, sibling rivalries just flare up and never get mended. That's the path of worldly sorrow. Godly repentance leads us back to God, where we find life, where relationships are restored. And so we can determine the nature of our sorrow. We can determine the nature of our, how we deal with our sin by examining the fruit of it. We see Judas going out alone, filled with hopeless regret. And what does he do? He ends his own life. He murders himself. Peter, however, owns his sin and goes on to be filled with the Holy Spirit and help lead the early church. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, in light of this, he says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we can tell when we have a heart of repentance because we change, right? The result of our sin when we have a repentant heart is that we change. And we can tell when other people have a repentant heart because the result of their sin, when, they can, when they're confronted with their sin, is that they change. And so the way of the cross we see is this lifelong race. It's like a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong journey. So repentance is a lifestyle. We see the, the apostle Peter becomes the pillar of the church because he lived a lifestyle of repentance. He, he, he continually would turn from sin as opposed to worldly sorrow. When all we experience is worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow is a stream of emotions. And Judas got swept up in this stream of emotions, and he allowed his emotions to control him. See, Judas was swallowed up in worldly regret. There's two ways, I believe, that as Christians, we can fall into this worldly regret. And and I'll just be honest with you, I'm, I'm I've been a Christian for a long time. And so when I fall into worldly regret, I like, you know, I'll have this tendency to kind of spiritualize it or whatever. Like, oh, I'm repenting to you, God, but I know I'm hiding my sin. I know I'm not taking full ownership. And there's two ways we do this. The first way, the first way I I call it a false repentance, that I fall into a false repentance, is we punish ourselves. We punish ourselves for our sin. The second way is we commit ourselves to trying harder. Both of those are examples of a false repentance. 
The first way, punishing ourselves. This is what Judas did. Judas punished himself. He felt bad about his sin, and he punishes himself. But listen, the error here is that Judas, nor you, and especially not me, none of us can ever fully punish ourselves enough to pay for our sin, right? You, you can't punish yourself enough. Here's the good news, though. The good news is that Jesus was punished for me. So when I fall, I don't beat myself up because Jesus was beaten up in my place. As Peter's denying Jesus and he looks over as Jesus is getting beaten up, Jesus is getting beaten up in the place of Peter. The second way I fall into false repentance, and I I think this is a common thing for us, is we commit ourselves to trying harder. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We try to make up for our weaknesses by doing better, by doing better things, becoming super religious, performing better, make you know, making promises to ourselves, making promises to God, making promises to others. See, that's a false repentance. If we're not repenting and turning to God and relying on His power to change us, everything we do is going to come from our own strength. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin, right? And what did they have available to them? They had fig leaves. They're like, they realized in their sin, they realized, well, we're naked. We need to cover ourselves. I mean, just imagine that. I don't know if you guys have kids. Like, it's easy to imagine if you have kids. Like trying to make clothes out of fig leaves, right? I see God just looking at them, just being like, yeah, that's almost cute, but whatever, you know? It's like, it doesn't work. Covering our sin doesn't work. It's obvious. If you think that you're covering your sin with some specially made fig leaf blanket right now, listen, you're not fooling God for sure, and you're probably not fooling anyone else. The fig leaf blankets, they don't do it. So how does God cover Adam and Eve? He does this beautiful act of sacrifice. He sacrifices an animal, spills out its blood, removes its skin, and he covers them, right? God offers them a more thorough covering. See, when we truly repent, we're far more covered and safe than we try to hide our mess from God. God knows how to cover us. Repentance. The next step on the way to the cross, we see quiet confidence. Quiet confidence is the way to the cross, or the way of the cross. Now, I'm going to be real direct here. I am not good at quiet confidence. That's not something I excel at. I like to defend myself. I like to have the last word. And we live in a culture even where we're encouraged to seek justice and fairness for ourselves. And here's the mind bender for us to consider. There are times when we're fully justified, when you're 100% right, but the right thing for you to do is to keep silent. Isn't that crazy? See, my tendency is to point out how I'm not wrong, right? And then when it's not received, I'm like, oh, gosh, maybe you didn't hear that. I'll say it again, right, for your benefit, right? <laughs> and then we start pointing out how, well, maybe you're wrong, right, if you don't see my rightness. You see, the way of the cross sometimes requires us to be quiet. I don't need to justify myself to others because Jesus has already justified me. I don't have to stick up for myself. Jesus has already stuck up for me. Jesus was fully justified, and yet we see in our text, he remains completely silent, does not answer their accusations. See, the cross does this for us. We are justified by Christ, so we don't have to justify and prove ourselves to others. Guys, that should bring you tremendous peace in your life. The cross frees me from other, what other people think about me. 
I'm justified by the cross. I'm now able to receive what other people think and say about me, even lies, even accusations, because the cross of Jesus means that I don't need to defend myself. Maybe we would suffer less if we spoke up, right? Maybe we'd feel better about ourselves if we, you know, if we defended ourselves just a little bit, but that self-defense and that self-promotion is not what Jesus shows us on the way to the cross. Jesus shows us that there is a time to be quiet. Now, of course, there's a time for us to be bold and speak the truth. I'm not saying that there's not. I'm not encouraging you to be in an abusive relationship and not say anything, right, because you're going the way of the cross. That, That is not what our text is addressing here today. We're to be bold. We're to speak the truth. We're to confront sin. Of course, we don't keep silent out of fear or shame like, oh gosh, I don't want them to know I'm this on-fire Christian because the way they're going to think about me or, or I, may, I might lose this opportunity or whatever. No, that's not, what Jesus, that's not what Jesus is showing us here on the way to the cross. However, I think it's a good for us to realize that Jesus said that there are times when speaking biblical truth is like throwing pearls before swine. That we're not supposed to be the correctors of every wrong thing in the world. We're not. The voice of conservative Christianity or orthodox Christianity should not be the self-righteous, Bible-thumping, sin-sniffing voice that points out all the errors of the world. And that's how the world knows us. There are times when Jesus was asked direct theological questions and he kept silent. See, Jesus would see the hard-heartedness of the people asking and he would just remain silent. See, it's okay to have a righteous anger over the sins of our culture. It's, a, it's good, and we should have a righteous anger. We, we should be very clear about what's right and what's wrong, but we need to guard our mouths so that we're not simply a bunch of noisy gongs in our culture. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that there's a time to speak, <coughs> speak, <laughs> and a time to be silent. That's my, my Peter Brady moment right there. And when faced with false accusations from these dishonest men who had twisted hearts, Jesus does not argue theology. He doesn't correct their theology on the, on the Messiah. When falsely accused of threatening the Roman authority in Israel, Jesus doesn't waste his time on their deaf ears. He remains silent. Jesus sat silently knowing he's fully approved and fully justified by the Father, even though he was going to suffer. Paul says in Colossians 4 that we must walk with wisdom, walk with wisdom with outsiders, making the best use of our time. Now, this doesn't mean that we hold off from the truth. This doesn't mean that we remain silent so that people don't think we're zealous or people don't know that we're Christians. No, we must be bold. We must uphold the truth and speak the truth in love. What he's saying is we need to be wise. We need to ask ourselves, what resembles the way of the cross? And so the fourth thing we see in Jesus' pursuit of the cross here. We see that the way of the cross reveals Jesus is the hero and not us. Jesus is the hero of the story. Now, we're introduced to this man whose name is Barabbas in the story. Barabbas is a truly guilty man. He's a murderer, and he's on death row. He's had all of his rights taken away. He's put in a prison cell. He's been condemned to death. He's unrepentant. He's a murderer. He deserves everything he's gotten. He deserves everything that's coming to him. Now contrast that with Jesus, who is now on trial, who's been arrested and is on trial. Jesus sits in this stark contrast with Barabbas. Jesus had only ever healed people and loved people and encouraged people and enlightened people and fed people. If there's anyone who deserved a pardon, if there's anyone who deserved even an apology from this justice system, 
It would have been Jesus this day, yet the chains are removed from Barabbas, this condemned criminal who deserved what he was getting. Chains are removed from Barabbas, and Jesus goes to the cross. And we have to remember there were, there were three crosses that day, right? There, there were three places that were set up for crucifixion. As we know, Jesus hung with, with two criminals on either side of him. That third cross probably was, was there for Barabbas. He was probably the third guy that was going to go to the cross. Jesus took the cross that was meant for Barabbas on this day. Jesus hung on a cross that Barabbas had earned. Now, this is an absurd exchange, but it's a clear picture of the gospel here, isn't it? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? A murderer with no remorse goes free while Jesus, the innocent Son of God, hangs on a murderer's cross in his place. And here's the point that we need to hear. And this is the point that's just so, been so convicting In this story, not only are we not the heroes of the story, but I've discovered I'm Barabbas in this story. I'm I'm the murderer in this story. I literally deserve nothing because of my sin. I was guilty in my sin, and it was God who came to me that while I was still sinning, while I was still rebelling, While my heart was far from God and there was nothing I could do about it myself. Just like Barabbas sitting in his cell with a hard heart. If you're going to release him, he's going to murder again because he can't change himself. He can't help himself. In this story, I way more, I resemble Barabbas way more than I resemble the true hero of the story. God sends Jesus to meet us in our sin and to set us free and to hang on a cross that I deserve. Jesus hung on a cross that that we all deserve because of our sin. And the gospel tells me that I deserve the cross, but Jesus takes the punishment for me. And I go free. If we want to know and follow Jesus on the way to the cross, we have to recognize that we have nothing to offer God. God didn't pick you. He's like, oh, there's a a guy with an accountant's mind. Let's let's do that, you know. That would be nice to have in the kingdom of God. Oh, look look at that. That person's really gifted and talented over there. We really need them. No, that is not why God chose you. You weren't like a good candidate for salvation. God chose you so that he would be big and beautiful and glorious and that the grace of God would be obvious. God chose condemned death row inmates so that we could know that God is a God of love. God chose you because you are totally undeserving to be saved. And we have to stop seeing ourselves like the hero of the story. Like, oh yeah, the day that God set me free in the kingdom of God became awesome because I became a part of it or something like that. Like, no, God doesn't need you in that way. Like, come on, get over yourself. We're like Barabbas in this story. Here's another wild truth of the cross. In my sin and in my rebellion, God actually brings about the most incredible response of love. God saw me dead in my sins, and he responded in love to save me. And so when I remember that it was my sin that sent Jesus to the cross, right? Obviously, God sent Jesus to the cross as an act of love, but it was in response to my sin, right? Was, he had to deal with my sin. So when I realize that, and I remember that, that my sin stands in that place. I, I see blood on my hands. Jesus' blood is on my hands. But I now rejoice because God has responded to my rebellion with love. I, I worship God for his incredible love and grace. I'm reminded every day that God met me in my hopelessness. He met me in my brokenness. He met me in my condemnedness. I can't change this. 
and he set me free. So Jesus' blood on my hands, it's not a shameful reminder when I remember this. His blood reminds me that my hands are actually, for the first time in my life, clean. If we want to follow Jesus and go the way of the cross, we have to start by seeing that we're Barabbas. We're also like the crowd. When life gets tough, the crowd who'd been fed by Jesus, who listened to Jesus, who celebrated Jesus. Just listen, this is Friday, the Sunday before, just five days before. They were like, oh, Hosanna with the palm leaves. Remember that? Same people. Here they're crucifying him on Friday. They're fickle hearts because it became complicated in light of the cross, in light of persecution. We're not going to be shouting Hosanna. I don't want to get lumped in with that guy. He's headed to a cross. In the same way, I see myself as part of the crowd. When I'm drifting from God, sometimes I seek comfort in other things because the way of the cross seems like drudgery. It seems hard. It seems like a sacrifice to me that I don't want to make. And so I realize if I want to endure this life and remain faithful, I have to fix my eyes on Jesus. It's, it's a, a vocabulary, it's a wording that the writer of Hebrews uses in Hebrews chapter 12. First two verses, it says, Since we have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. He's like, let's just step out of this stuff. There's stuff in my life that I don't need to be doing. Certainly the sin, but even other things. It might even be things that I think are good or beneficial, right? So, God might be saying, step out of that, son. Get out of that. You've got a race to run. Lay aside every hindrance and the sin that easily ensnares us. It says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, Jesus is worth going the way of the cross. It is worth it to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It will be worth it to endure the temporary shame and the hardships that we experience in this life for being obvious Christians, for being bold Christians, for being quiet Christians. It will be worth it to endure persecution in this life as we pursue, as we pursue this intimacy with God. It's worth it to walk with Jesus on the way to the cross. And so this morning... Let's not get near the cross and then scatter. That's what happened with the disciples. That's what happened with the crowd. They, they saw the cross and they scatter. Let's take the step that Jesus took. Now, what's striking about this crowd is that they, they liked Jesus' teaching. They liked, you know, kind of the free meal he would give every once in a while. They liked kind of just being around Jesus. He was different. He stood up to the religious leaders, Right? But then when it came to actually responding to Jesus, to actually taking steps of faith, they scattered. Church, don't be those Christians this morning. It's not like, oh, okay, the sermon's done. Let's split. Take time to respond to what God is doing in your heart. Take time to, to realign your life with the way of the cross. Let God direct you back to the way of the cross. Let's be bold and let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for courage. Let's pray for power in our life. That God would make us bold, to boldly proclaim the word of God. Who cares what hardships come with that? We get Jesus. We get intimacy with the Father, right? We have the opportunity to acknowledge our sin and rebellion before God. We have the opportunity to ask God for forgiveness and repent of our sin. That means that God actually lifts the weight of our sin off of us. He forgives us, and then he grants us repentance, which is total freedom from it. We get to walk as free men because Jesus bore the full sacrifice, the full penalty of our sin. Today, if you're fig leaf over sin blanket person, right? If you've got parts of your heart and your life 
that you're like, man, if I ever, if I ever let that out, it would change me. It would change my life. It would, I would lose opportunities. It would stretch this relationship. I don't know if it's worth the argument with my wife. I don't know if it... Listen, yes, it is. Go to God with your sin. Let God take your sin. Your temporary coverings aren't cutting it. They're not doing it, and they're holding you back from knowing and pursuing God. Maybe you're wallowing in shame. Maybe you're living two lives. Today, God wants to set you free. As we pursue the way of the cross, we experience freedom because the cross is where we find freedom. Today, we have the opportunity to be forgiven and have our hands made clean and holy. So church, let's join together and pursue the way of the cross as we respond today. As families walking together, we have the communion elements up here on the front of the stage like we do every week. And they're here today that we would like physically, tangibly experience the broken body and, and the blood of Christ to remember the sacrifice of the cross to help direct us back to the way of the cross. And the carpets are up here this morning to guide us into the right place and the right posture before God. Come get on your face before God. There's going to be a prayer people up here on the right or the left to help direct us back to the way of the cross. Let's respond. Let's offer our lives to God as a living sacrifice. Let's, let's follow Jesus as we see him pursuing the cross. Amen? Father, we thank you again for your word. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place, that you would just take your word, your truth, the, things that you've, the true things you've revealed to our hearts, God, and you would bring about a, a powerful response, a change. Help us, Lord, as your people to respond in spirit and in truth. We offer ourselves now as we worship you as living sacrifices, God, that Holy Spirit, that you would just extract worship, that we would offer worship to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.